Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, your favorite Bible history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And today we are talking about a place that I had never heard of, <laughs> but man, there's a lot of history there. Helen, so this is the the island of Elephantini. It has such a cute name, Elephantini. Yeah, <laughs> in I Egypt. Do you think you've been there? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, I have. I mean, it's one of those strange things that I remember back from being an undergraduate and and Elephantini, the Jews of Elephantini was one mm. of these things that was sort of batted around and I didn't really know anything about it. But then, um, uh, I don't know, I was in my 20s and I was backpacking in in Egypt and wow. I one of the things I did was sort of floating down the the Nile on this raft <laughs> Dang, very that dangerous. Sounds awesome. okay. but I've got this very vivid re- uh, recollection of going past I mean going to Aswan right down in the south and 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 being told this is the Elephantini island and um you know it vaguely sort of rang some bells with me but there's, there's a variety of sort of islands and things yeah, in yeah. the Nile down there but um yeah I mean it was small very small. So um, it's incredible it to think like that there's, there's right such one. a history. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was um, because I did recognize it from, you know, the stuff I'd studied. But um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know there was so much to know about the island. I didn't really know anything about it. So it's it's been fascinating to, yeah. to find out that it actually has a really, really sort of significant history. I got interested in this topic because in a few other podcasts, we've mentioned... Oh yeah, and then there was that other Jewish temple at Elephantini, and I was, and it would go it would go past me in the conversation, I'd, and I'd want to leap up and be like, "What are we talking about? <laughs> what the other Jewish temple?" Because then, okay, then there's another one. We have to have another episode. And Leontopolis as well. There's, there's, is that the actually, one in? You know... <laughs> is that Alexandria? Is that the one? In yeah, Alexandria? yeah, yeah. All right, so That's I'll right. write it's that in two down. In Egypt. We have to do another. <laughs> but but this the, just the word you know you hear the word elephantini and your ears prick up because you like you picture an elephant or a tiny I picture a teeny mm, elephant which teeny is, elephant. shows how stupid I am. Um, but that <laughs> <laughs> that there was a temple there. So um, we were very grateful to get in touch with Carl Vandertorn. So Carl he's a professor of religion and society at the University of Amsterdam, and he wrote this book called Becoming Diaspora Jews. Behind the story of Elephantini. So, as it as it turns out, like this Jewish community on this tiny island in Egypt may have been like one of the first what we call diaspora Jewish communities. You know, a Jewish community outside of you know what do you want to call it? Israel, the Holy Land, whatever <laughs> whatever word you want to use. And as we'll see, man, terminology gets really gets really kind of uh, touchy. Not touchy, but the terminology gets really confusing here because what we call, you know, Jews is a pretty modern conception. So when we're talking about people that were living in 500 BCE, they wouldn't call themselves Jews. They were just either Judeans from Judah or Samarians from Samaria. Or Israelites. Or Israelites in general, right? <laughs> from so, the north. Exactly. But they all, you know, bits of, of all those populations ended up on this island and maybe there, as Carl explains, is where they started to conceive of themselves as something unified, as something that we today would call Jews. Um, oh, so it's really cool. But before we talk with Carl, Helen, we have some SBL Study Bible winners 
to announce, and you heard me right, winners. Yeah. We're going to do two today because we're, we're crazy. <laughs> we're giving them away. We're throwing them at people. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for letting me announce the winners. So we have Don Oriti, who has been a Time Travelers Club member since the start of things. So you Ooh. really deserve this, Don. You've been a member since October 2023. That's amazing. And also Thanks, to Don. Dale Williams. So well done to both of you. Yeah, and Dale, Dale and I have emailed a little bit over the months, and he, I, I kind of forgot about it. I'm sorry, Dale. Dale had a really good idea that I just put on the list to do an episode on like travel in the ancient oh, world. Oh, that would be you know? good. Yeah, yeah. There's so many biblical journeys Everyone that people go traveling. on. Like, what was that like? I know that's a really good idea. Yeah. So thanks, Dale. We'll do that soon. And Helen, while we're talking about members of the Time and Travelers Club. We do want to tease an upcoming giveaway that we're going to be doing in the next few weeks. We're going to give away a free pass to a four-day conference. I bet people were hoping we were going to say four-day cruise or something <laughs> like that. Oh, I would have kept that myself. <laughs> a, we would have definitely snuck that one into our own pocket. Um, a four-day conference uh, sponsored by our friends at SBL. This is called the SBL Global Virtual Meeting. So this is a four-day conference for biblical studies, and it is a virtual meeting, so you can attend from your home. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be giving away one free pass to a Lucky Time Travelers Club member. So if you have been on the fence about joining, this is the time. All right, let's get to our conversation with Carl Vandertorn about the Jews of Elephantini. Well, Carl Vandertorn, welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Well, thank you for having me. All right, we are talking about the Jews of Elephantini. I think for a lot of our listeners, they're like the the Jews of where? <laughs> um, so maybe we could we could try to ground this in something that people might be familiar with. Are there are there references, or do we think there are references in the Hebrew Bible to a community of we're going to call them Jews? Mm -hmm. uh, living, you know, outside of Judea, possibly living in uh, Egypt. Yeah, well, Elephantini is in Egypt, so that's the first thing we have to say, <laughs> because not everybody will know that. Elephantini is in the very southern uh, part of Egypt, and yes, there is a reference, not to the place Elephantini in, in the Hebrew Bible, but in the book of Jeremiah, um, speaking about events after uh, the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 by uh, the Babylonians, speak about a group of Judeans that moved to Egypt. Mm. And they mention different places where they go to. And, but one of the places that they mention alongside the Nile Delta and central Egypt is the very southern province of Egypt, which was called Patros in uh, the Hebrew Bible. And that is where Elephantini is. That is the province uh, of Elephantini. And does that, does that line up sort of with our timeline? Like for when we think that community was in existence or established? Um, so we know about the, this Jewish community on the island from papyri, Aramaic papyri that were discovered in the uh, early 20th century. And um, these papyri cover the entire uh, 5th century, so between 500 and 400. 
uh, all of that century is covered, and those papyri speak about these Jews. Um, mm. Very good Jewish names uh, like Uriah and, and, and other biblical names, you would say. Um, they are in Aramaic, but it's clear that this is about uh, a Jewish community on the island of Elephantini. Now, that's from 500 to 400. But they mention in one of their letters sent to Jerusalem that they have a temple on the island, a temple yeah. for their God, whom they call Yaho. Um, and they say that that temple was already there when the Persians conquered Egypt. So Cambyses II in 525 uh, came and, and took Egypt and um, made it part of the Persian Empire. And at that time, uh, they say, the Jews say, there was already a temple on the island, so mm. 525, and Cambyses um, honored that tradition and, and left the temple unharmed. So they must have been there before 525. Yeah. Now, you say, does, does it match with the timeline, what we find in, in, in the book of Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah, that would be about 580, so that's earlier. But it is true that uh, the temple that we we have on the Jewish temple on the uh, the island of Elephantini has been recovered, have been discovered by by archaeologists, and and the most recent analysis of the history of the temple puts it to the beginning of the uh, uh, sixth century. So okay, yeah. So I would say. There probably was a Jewish, um, well, Jewish or Judean or mm -hmm. Israelite community on the <laughs> island. People, uh, worshippers of Yaho, let's let's put it that way, uh, around six hundred already, and 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 Judeans after the um, sack of Jerusalem, some Judeans joined them. Um, Okay. Later. Oh, so they would have been there. Okay, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, I, I was thinking, I was picturing in my head that these people had gone there after the destruction of Jerusalem, but they might predate that. Okay. Um, yes. Well, this has to do with the the composition of of the population, the Jewish population on Elephantine, because um, you ask me, uh, is there a biblical connection? Yes, there is a biblical connection because the the Book of Jeremiah speaks about Judeans. Mm -hmm who move, who leave Judah and go to Israel, to, uh, to Egypt, to different places in Egypt, one of them being the southern province, so that's presumably also yeah. Elephantini. Um, but it's quite likely that there were people before them. Um, Egyptian sources mention uh, people from Israel, uh, not only Judah, but also the northern part of Israel that are already in, in Egypt uh, as mercenaries, mainly, for uh, Egypt. Yeah, th this is what I don't quite understand. So pe some people have come down already from um, from Israel and they've come to this strange remote island in the south of Egypt. And so so these, I think you say in your book that these are, uh, it's a military colony already. So it's a military outpost of some kind and then more people come to join them. It seems uh -huh. a bit strange. I see. Yeah. No, I see your point. Actually, it's a very good point because the the 
the people, the Jews who came there, came there before the Persians were in Egypt. Mm. And when you find them in the 5th century, they're under Persian uh, uh, authority. And um, they work on a system which has been called uh, the, the land for service system. Actually, they have their own fields, not on the island itself, but on uh, the mainland, uh, uh, on, on the side of Aswan. Um, and they must be ready to perform certain duties for the Persians. And we assume uh. that these duties include military duties, because also they, they, they're right there at the frontier. So they're mercenaries you know? then? They're, they're mercenaries, but they're not full-time mercenaries. <laughs> right, part-time. I'm, yeah, they're part-time <laughs> mercenaries. No, it's, uh, no weapons have been found on the uh. island. Nothing of that sort. And actually, when you read about their daily activities, they go to the mainland. Uh, you know, you have these ferries that bring them, put them to the mainland. It's a very short ride. And they work the fields. And they have an income from that. Now, of course, these fields are the property. The, the Persians own them because they own the whole land. But they have um, the usufruct of, of, the, of these, these lands. Um, and they must be ready to perform certain duties for that. And that those duties include military duties when the need arises. We assume that before the Persians were there, <laughs> you had the Egyptians, of course, and they must have served the Egyptian population. So, okay, yeah, let's 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 try to back up then and give our best our best scholarly guess as to kind of where you know these these I, we 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 keep using air quotes. It's not very helpful to our listeners <laughs> that when we no. when we make quotes. I guess we have to decide at some point what we're going to call them. They, they, we, we call them the Jews of Elephantini, but. Or the, even you could say the Judeans, but now we're going to see maybe they weren't even from Judea. So where do we think that this original population came from and, and when? It's a tricky question uh, because you could say all Jews come from Israel. So what's, what's right. the point of asking? <laughs> but uh, Israel, of course, uh, historically was divided in two kingdoms. And you had the northern kingdom and you had the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, which was Judah was really the smallest, was the tiniest of the two. Hmm. And uh, politically speaking, militarily speaking also, uh, the northern kingdom was the real powerful kingdom. Um, and it's only because the Bible, as we know it, the Hebrew Bible as we know it, is a product hmm. of Judeans that the Judean perspective <laughs> has come to dominate the, yeah. so much in, in the Hebrew Bible. Now, the most likely scenario, I think, that we have, and there are different reasons for this, is that um, the main group that came to, to Elephantini, uh, historically, uh, it, are, are uh, not Judeans, but are Israelites. That means people, or you could call them Sumerians, uh, from the area that, is, that has become the, the Assyrian province of Samaria. Uh, and here you have to remember that um, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Samaria was destroyed by the Assyrians earlier, earlier in 720. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the um, um, reasons why um, 
the inhabitants of Samaria, uh, many inhabitants of Samaria, moved away. Some moved away to Judah, because we find in Judah Samarians at some point. And uh, this also explains that you get uh, a common heritage of Samarians and Judeans. For instance, you have northern prophets uh, like Hosea that end up in the Bible because there is this move mm. of Samarians, of northerners to the south. But some went to different places abroad. And some ended up in Egypt too, uh, mostly in, in, in military capacities because that's what that's the kind of service that they could perform. Hmm. Ah, okay, so this oh that's so that sets up a different timeline. So we were I was assuming before mm -hmm. that we were thinking about the people being scattered after the Babylonian destruction of of Judah, but now this makes more sense that there was this earlier sacking of of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and maybe that's when the people first set out for these other other places. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying, because um, the, um, let's say, the Sumerian diaspora, or the northern diaspora, or the Israelite diaspora, mm. uh, in distinction from the Judean diaspora, uh, is earlier. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, many of the Israelites were taken, in fact, to, to Assyria, and so there is an Assyrian exile that predates the Babylonian exile. Yeah. Uh, they ended up also as mercenaries, in fact, in the Assyrian army, we know. Um, some moved to Judah, some moved to other places, uh, including Egypt, at some point at least. So can you tell us a little bit more about this island then? Why, why is it called Elephantini? <laughs> <laughs> Did it sound like an elephant? Well, it, it, <laughs> I mean, where does that name come from? It has the big advantage that you do not forget its name. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> to speak about the Jews of Elephantini, well, we, we people will remember the Jews of Elephantini. <laughs> um, it's it's a tiny island. It's really very small. It's 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 one. It's a little over a kilo kilometer uh, long. Hmm. And at its broadest point, it's like 400 meters. Wow. So it's, it's, you can walk around the island uh, in, in a brief uh, uh, period of time. Uh, and Elephantini, uh, it, it's the ancient, well, of course, Elephantini is, is the Greek name, but it's a translation of the Egyptian name, which means elephant. <laughs> Um, people have said, well, it looks like an elephant, or there were rocks that looks like elephants. Well, I don't know. And, you know, if you use your imagination, you might see an elephant there. But um, the more plausible interpretation is probably um, that it was a center uh, for the trading of ivory. Ivory uh, from inland Africa, right, yeah. and this way it was really uh, this was at the frontier, and this was a, a trading post also. Have we any idea how many people were living on this island? We have an idea, or um, an informed guess based <laughs> on 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 what remains, you know, of what we have found uh, from the remains of the houses, uh, and also a list of people that have donated uh, money to uh, the temple of Yaho. We have uh, one of these lists. And if, if you extrapolate from that list, you get to, well, around 500 persons. Mm -hmm. uh, so that includes women and children. 
living uh, on the island, Jewish persons living on the island. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask. Was it was it more than just a Jewish community living on the island? I mean, it was a small island, but were there was it a multi ethnic kind of community? Yeah, there were other people. Um, okay. Of course, there were Egyptians. It's uh, it has a, a famous temple of uh, an Egyptian god, the god Khnum. And uh, there is an important Egyptian presence, and actually there is tension between these Egyptians and the Jews at some point later in the fifth century. Uh, and there is also um, a small but not unimportant Iranian community living on the island. <laughs> so there's, they are not alone there. They're certainly not alone. Um, they intermarry also with Egyptians. Not very often, but it happens. Um, in fact, they intermarry more with Egyptians than they do with Arameans, because you have on the other side of the Nile, on, on the mainland in Aswan, there are two important Aramean uh, communities, which speak their language, because they speak Aramaic. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I've, I've heard of Aramaic, but I didn't know that there was a people called Arameans. What, who are the Arameans? <laughs> yeah um it's a, it's a people that um that has a long had a, a semi-nomadic lifestyle and that you find in different places in many places actually of the uh, early middle east um mainly in syria uh but also in babylonia you found them um uh they have their own language, indeed, Aramaic, which is something... Aramaic is a, is a Semitic language, like Arabic, like Hebrew, like Babylonian. Um, and it uh, came to be, uh, in the over the course of the century, the main language of the, the Middle East. Um, Jesus spoke yeah. Aramaic. But there is um, uh, an, eth an ethnic group, the Arameans, uh, whose language this primarily is first is okay. and these Arameans have their own religion uh, they adopt also they they, they, they have a, a mixed religion in a sense because they also have Babylonian gods but uh, for instance uh, the god Bethel and his spouse Anna Bethel are clearly Aramaic Aramean deities <laughs> So I think our listeners are very curious about this temple. I know it's something that we've, it's come up in other podcast episodes and we're like, oh yeah, there was that temple at Elephantini. And I'm always like the temple at where? So <laughs> do we have, you know, is it convincing archeological evidence and this other evidence from the papyri that there was a functioning temple to, to Yahweh or to something that sounds a lot like Yahweh um, <laughs> on the island of, of Elephantini in the fifth century BCE? Yeah, well, that evidence is absolutely compelling, and right. it's both literary and it's archaeological. So uh, there can be no doubt about it. And it was one of the great um, uh, amazements, uh, let's say, uh, when the uh, Elephantini papyri, these Aramaic papyri, were first discovered in the beginning of the 20th century to find that here was a Jewish community um, living all through the 5th century, uh, after the reforms of Josiah, where there was only to be only one temple in Jerusalem, um, they had their own temple on the island, <laughs> and it was called the House of Yahoo. 
And um, so Yahoo, which might well have been the original pronunciation of the name that is nowadays by most scholars pronounced as Yahweh. Yeah, there is, I mean, the, the case for the pronunciation Yahweh is not very strong in my opinion, in fact. Hmm. So, Syrian texts, for instance, uh, render Hebrew names or the theophoric element in Hebrew names, the, the element that refers to the God of uh, the Hebrews or the Jews, as Yahoo, uh, Yahoo, Yahoo, um, and the, they don't have the O sound in, in Assyrian, um, which you do have uh, in Aramaic. Um, so Yahoo is might well be the original <laughs> pronunciation, actually. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Which you also find in, in Egyptian magical papyri, they refer to Yahoo as the god of the Jews. Now, you ask this because there was a temple, and, and the temple is called indeed the house of Yahoo. Uh, many intriguing things about this temple because it was a big building. It was a real, it was not just a small sanctuary, it was a really a big building. Um, not entirely recovered by archaeologists, but they did recover it, uh, or parts of it, and it clearly is, it, it, it was a very sizable thing. Um, it was devoted to Yahoo, it was called the House of Yahoo, but um, text makes it clear, make it clear, several texts make it clear that there is also a concert of Yahoo, as the name was come sometimes called Anat Bethel and sometimes Anat Yahoo. So apparently Yahoo was identified with this Aramean deity Bethel, hmm. which is <laughs> striking to say the least. And uh, there's reference to two other gods, Cherem Bethel uh, and Eshem Bethel, both deities. And, uh, who were somehow present by a symbol or something else, uh, an image, or uh, in the in the Yahoo Temple? Oh, so it wow. was. Uh, he had company. <laughs> he had company. <laughs> he had company. I mean, people sometimes say this is polytheism, the polytheism of the Elephantine Jews. I. I'm not certain that polytheism is really the, the best term, the most lucky term. Um, you could say Yahweh is really the central deity, but he has a concert and he has, well, offspring, presumably. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, or it's, servants or children. or Yeah. You know. It's something that's uh, it's come up in, in other conversations on the podcast, the idea that mm. probably to the, you know, to the really... As far the farther we go back, the more you have the idea of a, of a, well, not really necessarily a pantheon, but of a uh, like a divine council mm. or something like that. Like we have the mm. the highest god, and then you might have a couple of his friends that are also helping out, and also a a mm. consort of some sort of female deity that accompanies it. So yeah, that's I guess that shouldn't be super. Yeah, the, it's shocking. a small circle of gods, and mm. uh, I I think this was also the situation actually. I mean, the the mistake that we could make, and that many people make, I think, is to consider Elephantini as the exception. Mm. So, and that's very, and you can see why people want to think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, if you read the Bible, 
you do not really get the impression that something like this could have happened. Mm. Um, however, we know from inscriptional evidence that uh, also in Judah, so let's say back home, there is a reference to uh, a goddess Asherah, who is mm. called the Asherah of Yahoo. And um, it's a goddess. And yeah. it's clearly, it's, it's, it's a sconcer. I think the general idea that you find in these temples all over the, the ancient Middle East um, is that you have these different circles of deities. So uh, uh, it's not the whole pantheon that is in a temple, but it's it's the main god, and therefore it is called the temple of this and that god, the temple of of of, of Yahweh, or the temple of, uh, of Marduk in, in Babylon. Um, but a god will never be alone. I mean, as a rule, the god is not alone. There is mm. a concert, mm. and there are some servants. There is an entourage. There's yeah. a divine entourage, mm. and sometimes gods in residence from neighboring or related you know if you mm. if you're affiliated with a different country you might have you invite uh, them in <laughs> you invite them in there's a place for that deity yeah. in your temple because I mean, these are the aramean gods that are, are i mean the, the aramean people right. are, are just across the water aren't they so you're just they inviting are. them in and keeping everybody happy and yeah yeah that might be the explanation um that's a, that's a possible explanation certainly um it might also be that um the people that we are referring to as the elephantini jews thought of themselves more like arameans mm. in fact than as jews mm. and that they only at a later stage came to identify themselves as jews oh that's yeah so now we're getting now we're getting yeah. to the interesting <laughs> part of the conversation because it was something that you wrote in your book, no, you didn't the, like what what we spoke about just before. No, I like I like everything we've talked <laughs> That's about. That's good too. That's good too. But now we're getting to this <laughs> this idea, and we've been dancing around it so far. Of like, do we call them Jews? What are we calling them? So let's yeah. let's talk about this community. Uh, I, you know, you. I guess first of all, do you do you think this qualifies as perhaps like the first? You know, what we could call the first sort of Jewish diaspora community mm. is that is that fair or was it at least among the, the first yeah it's it's among the earliest diaspora communities um whether it's the earliest remains to be seen um it was pre probably there before the uh babylonian diaspora yeah and we we're using the time diaspora in a very general sense now because um uh, the Hebrew Bible would not refer to it so much as a diaspora as the exile or the, mm. the, the captivity, uh, the Babylonian captivity or exile. But I prefer the term, the more general term, diaspora. Um, well, let's say for forced emigration, living abroad. Um, well, that happened also already with the the northerners, the Sumerians in 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 uh, in Assyria, yeah, uh, from 720 onwards. So that was older, but it is it, it is an early uh, community. Now, we, convention has it uh, that they are Jews, uh, and that is that is sort of a problematic term, in fact. Um, 
What you do find in their texts, so in these Aramaic texts from the 5th century, the Elephantini papyri, many of these papyri are, are, are quite formal and identify these people, and these people also self-identify. And what they identify as is, one, mostly as Arameans. That's the more common. So they say, I'm an Aramean from um, Elephantine or Aswan. They sometimes regard themselves as belonging to Aswan. Um, and sometimes they, less or so, less frequently so, but they also do this, they refer to themselves as Yehudai. So, uh, and a Yehudai, you can translate Two ways. You can translate it as Judean, and you can translate it as Jew. Mm. Now, what's the difference between a Judean and a Jew to you? Well, what would you say, Dave? Oh, yeah, no, uh, so we're talking. I'm sorry, you, you were actually asking. I thought that was No, I'm asking, I'm asking you a um, I guess you're talking about sort of a you know, geographic, ethnic uh, thing if you're a Judean, and then... Jew, uh, obviously, right. now in our modern ears, it's it's a religious term. But was that a distinction that existed right, back then? Right. Um. Yeah. Well, that's the point, actually. So, if you, it's we created our own problem in a sense because they did not distinguish between Jew and Judean. It was one and the same term. Mm -hmm. If we call them Jews, it means that we're saying, you know, modern usage of the term, that they uh, were adherents of Judaism as a religion, whereas Judean, indeed, it sounds more like an ethnic term. Um, now, it's very difficult, of course, in the case of Judeans, Jews, to make this distinction between ethnicity and religion. Of course, Jews can be religious and non-religious, but nevertheless, their tradition, their religious tradition, and they, many Jews, also non-believing Jews, will observe some of these traditions. Um, you could argue that you had no Jews before Judaism, and Judaism only arose in the second century BCE. I mm. mean, that argument has been made, and well, quite compellingly, I think. Our difficulty, or my difficulty with the term uh, Judean, is um, that a significant part of the population at Elephantini was not from Judah, but was from Samaria mm -hmm. originally. And in fact, that was the largest component of the population. So I use the term Jews uh, more broadly to, to include Sumerians. You never find the word Sumerian, by the way, in the papyri, hmm. but um, it's clear from a number of indications that those Sumerians, those northerners, those non-Judeans, if you wish, <laughs> were actually uh, the major component of the uh, population. And this is all, I mean, this is all taking place and they're writing and they're thinking and they're existing in, in this island before the Hebrew Bible is, is committed to writing, isn't it? So in a way, I mean, again, it sort of feels like this is even earlier than those texts that sort of try to outline the, the history and, and thought of... of um, Judeans or Jews or however you want to put it. Yeah, this is one of the, you know, when they first discovered the, the papyri, one of the hopes was, of course, that they would find in Elephantini a forerunner of the Hebrew Bible because mm. this was the people of the Bible, of course. Yeah. Nothing of the sort was <laughs> came up, nothing of the sort. 
Uh, although, uh, although I have to make a small reservation, but on the island, nothing of that sort came up. They found literary texts, two literary texts, but one was Aramaic uh, wisdom composition and the other was a Persian uh, edict or Persian uh, royal inscription. Um, no, you're right. Much of the Bible was not committed to writing yet, although parts of the Bible existed, yeah, yeah. but they were not parts of the Bible, of course. They were just... <laughs> Random uh, writings. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were collections of, of prophetic writings. That, that, was, that was certainly there already. And uh, there was some historiography. Uh, there were some, some psalms. Some psalms. There were hymns, uh, religious songs. That, that, that was all in existence. But nothing of the sort. There was no sacred scripture. There were venerable texts from tradition not found at the island of Elephantini, although, and, and here I should bring in something that is um, very relevant to the study of Elephantini, but has become available not so long ago, um, the Amherst Papyrus number 63. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ah, I, I assumed... I assumed you knew. No, uh, <laughs> hasn't everybody heard of Amherst? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they talk about it. It's all over uh, TikTok. <laughs> but uh, other than that, yeah. no, it's 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 uh, it sounds like a mysterious papyrus, and 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 up to a point it is. Actually, the papyrus was found before the um, Elephantini papyri. Oh, so the papyrus. Um, it was uh, it was bought by an Englishman uh, in the 1890s, Lord Amherst, and that's why it's called ah. Papyrus Amherst. So Lord Amherst, he, who who was uh, by that time, um, I think in his 60s or 70s already, uh, he was a collector of uh, various things, but also of Egyptian uh, artifacts and texts, and. Um, he became the owner uh, uh, of a, a collection of, of Egyptian papyri that whose finding spot was unknown. I mean, different stories circulate about it, but it was bought on the market, so it was not from an actual excavation. Um, and this papyri, this set of papyri were all Egyptian papyri, um, and one of them was papyrus number 63, and that was a mystery papyrus because Egyptologists could not make head or tail of it. I mean, it was uh, it was written in demotic uh, characters, so in Egyptian characters. But and it is quite clear. I mean, if you look at photographs of the papyrus, you can see the signs are quite clear. But Egyptologists could not understand what they were reading <laughs> until an um, somebody who knew Aramaic uh, uh, started to, to look at these. And what they found is the texts were written in demotic, in Egyptian characters, but the language that was used was Aramaic. Mm. And this is, it's, it's an amazing text. It's a long text, 23 columns, 20 lines every column. Mm. So it's, in fact, it is the longest um, uh the most extensive collection of Aramaic text that we know from that period. Oh. And it comes from Egypt. <laughs> mm. And it's written in Egyptian characters. So um, it took quite a while before this text could actually be used. 
and um, recent years have, have seen a number of editions of the text so we, we still things that are difficult of course it's it's not an easy text but what is clear is that uh, it is a text that unites um, material from the stream of tradition religious text mainly but also some historical texts from three different communities uh, and one of those communities it was a um, an Israelite community that is to say people that came from northern Israel and that had uh, various religious songs. The other two communities are both Aramean communities, one from Syria and from the region of Hamat, modern Hama in, in Syria, and the other from Babylonia, uh, but also an Aramean community. So for some reason, these groups had come together and they had put religious texts together, and the theme of these religious texts was quite common. These were texts, um, except for the historical text, these were texts that uh, take place at the New Year Festival, the celebrations of New Year. Hmm. Now, the interesting thing, if you look at this text, you might say, what, what has the text to do, what has that, that papyrus <laughs> to do with Elephantini? Um, the intriguing things that you find in this text is that the gods that you find on the island of Elephantini in the Yahoo Temple, and the gods of the Arameans on the mainland in Aswan, which are uh, uh, Nabu and uh, Banitu, or Nanai, and Bethel and Anabethel, or the Queen of Heaven, those are precisely the deities uh, that figure prominently in, in this collection of texts. Ah. So this leads us to suspect that these different communities at some point, at least, have, have, have come together, have put their religious heritage together, uh, translated up to a point into Aramaic, because it's clear that the, the Israelite section, in fact, uh, that, the, the, let's say, the original songs were uh, in Hebrew, that still shimmers through in, in the Aramaic, but has been translated into Aramaic as you know, a book of hymns, a common book of hymns for that community. And you're painting Are you still a... following me? I am, <laughs> <Yes>. I am. <laughs> no, I'm saying well, you're, you're painting a very interesting picture. So you have, you have this Amherst papyra that seems to talk about a multi-ethnic, almost multi-religious you know, community in which they're kind true, of collectively you know, worshipping their gods and celebrating a new year. But I, I, I do want to get to something that you said in the book, which I find is very interesting. You say that the Jews of Elephantini go against what we consider to be like the traditional diaspora narrative. So that is where a people, let's say Jewish people have to mm. they're kind of forced to leave their homeland. They go somewhere else and their job now is to retain their Jewishness right. in this foreign land. Right. But you say it's a little different that they kind of became Jews in the diaspora. So what do you mean? Like, how does that fit into this idea that there were also other, you know, quote unquote religions that they were that they were interacting mm. with? Mm. So what you find in 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 the the papyri is that they first identify or foremost, first and foremost, identify as Arameans and 
later on they um, adopt a more uh, Jewish identity. Hmm. Why is that? Um, well, I think there's two reasons. Um, one reason is that um, people from northern Israel and people from southern Israel did not regard themselves as belonging to one people. Hmm. They were different peoples. They were different. They came... They spoke one language and they they worshipped the same deity. That is true. So there was there were connections, but they did not think of themselves as belonging to one nation. Actually, they had far more local identities uh, than that. And it was only in a diaspora situation that they discovered that there was some overarching unity that they were related, that they were brothers and sisters in a way. In ways they had not thought of before, so that is, and that is not so uncommon. I think um, if you look at Gandhi, I mean, who came to embody the Indian identity at at some point, he came to think of himself as an Indian rather than as a Gujarati, which was where he was from in in India. When he went to London and was oh. part of the Indian diaspora oh, during yeah. his studies in London or in oh. South Africa later. So that's where people discover that we're not just from a certain region or we don't only have a local identity, but we also form, we are a nation. We are mm. one people. So this is one thing that happened. The other thing is, and that has to do with the Persians. At some point, the Persians recognized the Judeans, let's call them Judeans, um, as a distinct ethnic group mm. with their own religion. And uh, what you read in the Bible, because you know we're speaking also about the Bible, about the missions of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, where we read that the Persian um, king has authorized Ezra to introduce uh, uh, the law, uh, the Torah, as, as, as the law of the Jewish people, um, that reflects uh, recognition by the Persian authorities of the Jewish nation hmm. or the Judean nation. And uh, in fact, if you look at the Elephantine and uh, Papyri, you find one uh, letter that also records um, uh, rules about uh, uh, Passover and uh, Matzot, hmm. uh, the festival of uh, unleavened bread, um, with a reference to Persian authorities uh, uh, implementing that they should follow the same calendar rules as, as a Jewish community. And does, that occurs in 419 BCE, hmm. so toward the end of that period. So what I think happens is um, they come to identify with uh, to identify with a specific ethnic group that has been recognized by the Persian as an ethnic group with its own province in Judah and with its diaspora abroad. And these people, whether they come from Samaria or from Judah, are designated by the Persians and also self-designated in turn as Judeans, or Jews, as we yeah. would say, well, that makes if sense. we want yeah. to be more inclusive. Yeah. So there's advantages then in in sort of slotting into something that's that's known. There must be advantages because, um, in fact, 
you know, you have this dispersion intervent, or it's an intervention uh, by a Jew, but acting with the authority of the Persians under Persian patronage, so to speak, saying, making a new rule about the the calendar of uh, of Passover and uh, Matzot. That happens in 419. And since that day, or since that year, relations with the Egyptians become sour, mm-hmm. which ends in 410 with the destruction of the temple by the hands of the Egyptians. The mm. temple of the island and of Elephantine is destroyed in 410. Um, so apparently the Jews benefited from a kind of protection of the Persians mm. as a you know as a recognized ethnic ethnic group. And do we know if they're keeping in touch with with sort of the homeland in in Jerusalem or anywhere else? We do. Um, not much, but once their temple is destroyed in 410, um, well, they of course um, uh, are, are in grief and, and they want to rebuild that temple. Um, it's it's not a reason for them to, re- to, to, to leave, no, they want to rebuild their temple and they sent letters to Jerusalem to get their support for rebuilding the temple. Not only to Jerusalem, though, also to Samaria, because <laughs> Judah, <laughs> Judah and Samaria were, were both uh, were distinct Persian provinces at the time. And they write to both, um, which tells you something also about the composition of the community. So they feel ties with both Judah and with Samaria. And they ask for support, letters of support to the Persian authority so they can rebuild their temple. They get these letters of support. Hmm. From both groups? From both groups. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So, so, these, apparently, so all of this survives in the record? Like the, that survives in the record. That yeah. survives in the record, yes. And, um, well, the only thing that, that, the only concession that they ask, apparently, but it's reading between the lines a bit, is that there shall be no animal sacrifice in the temple. But otherwise, so the the authorities in Jerusalem find it find it perfectly okay if they have built their own temple. And of course, the temple is a community center here. It's it's identity, it's it's much more than just a religious building. Um and they rebuild their temple and abandon it a few years later when the Persians lose hold of Egypt mm. and they lose their protection and they leave the island. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask how it all ended. So so basically once the Persians were out of power, the, these people did not feel safe kind of continuing to live that's, there. That's the story. That's mm. the story. Um, so they were there before the Persians or their ancestors on the island were there before the Persians came. But you could say that in under the Persians, they really flourished and and they benefited from the protection at some point also of the Persians. Uh, They were reliable, they were uh, very much uh, part of the Persian administration, you might say, the whole uh, superstructure of of, uh, the political superstructure of Egypt. when you have these uprisings in Egypt toward the end of the 5th century and, and uh, the Persians lose control over Elephantini, 
uh, as over much of the rest of Egypt. Um, there is no point for the Jewish community to stay on the island. It would be dangerous, uh, mm. considering the conflicts that had already been happening in the very recent history then uh, with the Egyptians of the island. Mm. We don't know where they went. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of those questions that you would like to answer. Of course, yeah. there is a, an important Jewish, um, uh, in later times, uh, an important Jewish uh, uh, diaspora in, in Egypt. Um, remember that the um, Greek translation of the Hebrew yeah. Bible comes from Egypt. Alexandria, yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. All right, well, Helen, do you want to ask the big Big question. Yeah, our final question then. Thank you so. It's been really interesting. I mean, just such yeah, a such a yeah. So so much information actually about these um, these people. But yeah, our last question is: as you know, we really do have a time machine, and we can take you <laughs> anywhere you would like to go. So, um, where would it be? You know, this really is my dream. Oh, no. I mean, I, I mean, we can make it come true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So. <laughs> Okay, um, I've been writing on Alphadina. I'm writing now. I'm doing now a book. I'm writing a book on on the history of Israelite religion more generally. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I've often asked myself, and that I could only be answered by a time machine, <laughs> is transport me back to 850 BCE. Okay. In, in either in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, because you had those two kingdoms then. And my big question then would be, if I were there, would I recognize it as Israelite religion, <laughs> what I see? <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. I don't know the answer, because nobody put me in the time machine yet. Oh well, we're very we're very well, excited to give you your chance. I we have to tell come you come back and tell us. Yeah, there's like <laughs> I think last count there were were there two hundred thousand people in line already. So you're gonna be it's gonna take a while to get to you, <laughs> but just hold out and when it's your turn, we will set that time machine back to mm -hmm. 850 BC. That's very exciting. Well, uh, Carl, come too. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> Helen's gonna join you. Um. <laughs> Carl, yeah, this is this has been fascinating. I, I hope our listeners were able to to follow all of the kind of revelatory things that that we talked about here. Just 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 trying to place ourselves into this tiny community on this tiny island, you know, in southern Egypt at a time when the Hebrew Bible was really yet to be composed. And here were these, you know, Judeans slash Sumerians slash Jews trying to live there their religion having their own little temple i don't know it's, it's amazing so thank you so much uh thank you helen thank you to our listeners and this has been another episode of biblical time machine we will see you guys next time bye bye okay everybody and don't forget we've got some big giveaways coming up in the next few weeks for members of the time travelers club so if you choose to support the show which we really appreciate we will give back to you in the form of book or a free pass to the SBL Global Virtual Conference. So get your name in the running, support the show, and become a member of the Time Travelers Club. Details in the show description below. Thanks. <laughs>